The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. A week ago, the author Margaret Atwood turned 80 years old. A month ago, she was awarded the Booker Prize for her novel, The Testaments. Sixty-four years ago, she decided that she was a writer, not that she wanted to become one, but that she was one. She was right, and she's been proving it for more than six decades with her poetry, her novels, short stories, her essays and introductions, her nonfiction works, her television scripts, her libretti, her graphic novels, her children's books, her tweets. We've probably missed a few categories. How do we get our minds around Margaret Atwood in a single episode? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you one sentence, and we will spend the episode exploring it. And because it's Thanksgiving week here in the States, and because this is the time of year when I get all sappy and think about how thankful I am for my listeners, I'm going to intersperse some emails from all of you into the show today. Are you ready? Here's the sentence. Margaret Atwood is a Canadian woman, an incredible writer, who has lived an incredible life. That's it. That's all we have. What can we make of those simple little words? We'll find out today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Margaret Atwood is a Canadian woman, an incredible writer who has lived an incredible life. Let's see what we can do with that little sentence. But first, let's get rolling with one of our emails. This one comes from Bob. Subject. Well, that was exciting. (laughs) Once again, I'm a little anxious opening up this email. Why am I such a glass half empty kind of person? I'm filled with dread. Seeing the subject line, something I did was not exciting. And this person, Bob, is here to mock me. But no. No, this one is from a friendly Bob. Bob is a friend of the show. Dear Mr. Wilson, I noticed today that I had missed the show you did on Herman Melville. So, naturally, I dove in. Can't believe that was a year ago. That episode started off with some listener mail from a guy named Bob. I laughed to myself at this and thought how unfortunate that some other guy has the same name as me. I wonder what else he and I will have in common. As you began reading the email, my first thought was, Wow, Bob, pretty long introduction you got there, and I wondered how I would have written it. Then, as the email went on, I began agreeing with the things Bob had said. (laughs) That's the best part of the email. I began agreeing with the things Bob had said. The email continues, then the email said, I live well outside of Toronto, Ontario, and commute an hour and ten minutes each way each day, and I laughed and thought how both Bob and I have that in common. It wasn't until the next line about living in a small town that it hit me. I was, and still am, I suppose, that Bob. Of all the episodes to miss, (laughs) that was in all caps, why did it have to be that one? In any case, it was exciting to receive your written response, but then to get a bonus response and reply during an episode truly made my day. So thank you again for that. 
I have turned several people on now to the podcast who are all happy to get into it. Of the people I mentioned it to, I don't think anyone has begun consuming the content more voraciously than my wife. She is due soon with our second child and has had a tough time physically through this pregnancy. Having your podcast around has definitely helped her take her mind off things. My wife is an English and history major and is constantly reading. I feel she has been enjoying your podcast on a deeper level as she has read many of the books and authors in your episode list. So we both thank you. Bob goes on to recommend that we do an episode on Native American literature, which has been on my list for a while now. Definitely worth digging into. Hopefully we'll get to that one soon. And then he says, Secondly, you've mentioned your trips through Asia several times, and I really enjoy those stories and how you use them to help gild some of your episodes. However, the one question I still have is what initially set you off on that journey? Thank you again for all that you do. Bob. Well, Bob, thank you for your email. I loved it. I'm so glad I was helpful to your wife during her pregnancy. I've been closely involved with a couple of pregnancies, including one that involved partial bed rest. And I know how valuable it can be just to have something to take the mind to other places. What an exciting but sometimes harrowing time. I hope all goes well for you and your wife. Partial bed rest. My wife and I used to argue about this as she would be up and about, teaching her literature courses, taking care of our toddler, running around New York City to get things done. And I would say, what part of bed rest don't you understand? And she would say, what part of partial don't you understand? And rhetorically, I lost, because there were an even number of terms, and I had gone first. That was the problem. If there had been one more word in that phrase... Let's say it was mandatory partial bed rest. I might have done better. But in the end, everything was fine, and now the two of us have no reason to argue because we're too busy fighting rhetorical battles against our boys who know how to use language as well. My teenager hurt his foot, so he's been soaking it in warm water. Warm, soapy water, he asked my wife if she could prepare it for him. It's your foot, she said. It's your son, he replied. <laughs> what could she do? He was right. He's her son, and she loves him probably more than he loves his own foot. In any case, Bob, you ask a good question about Asia. What happened was this. I lived in the same room of the same house on the same street in the same small town for 18 years. That's how I grew up, liter literally. I was brought home from the hospital and given a home in a little room in the corner of a ranch house in Wisconsin, and that was my home for 18 years. And I'd taken a few trips. Every summer, we would go on a driving trip to Canada or to Mount Rushmore or to Florida or Arizona, places like that. Long trips from Wisconsin, car rides, great memories from those trips in our station wagon where my sister and I could sleep. And every night we'd pull into a motel and unload the wagon, including a cooler full of food and a few appliances to make our meals. We took a toaster with us. Why go out for breakfast when you can just bring your toaster into the hotel room and make some toast right there in the room? Bread, peanut butter, jelly. That's a lunch. My parents were teachers. They didn't have any money. But who cared? This was a fantastic adventure. 
I'd rather hit the road and see the Grand Canyon than stop off for breakfast. But on these trips, my father was afraid to fly, so I'd never been on a plane. I saw a lot of America and a bit of Canada, but that was it. Never been to California or New York City. Chicago was about it, as far as cosmopolitan places went. And then I wound up at the University of Chicago, and I started meeting people from all over the country and all over the world, and they were getting on planes and flying places, and things started to seem more possible. And I was required to take a foreign language, and everything was closed. I think I've told this story before. Spanish, Latin, German, French, Chinese, all were booked. And I said to them, well, what's left? And they said, Italian. There's room in Italian. Okay, fine. And I decided during that first year to be an English major because I realized I was loving literature more than anything else. And that meant a second year of a foreign language would be required. Okay, fine. And I'm telling you this not because I think you'd care about the academic administration of it all, but to emphasize how random all this was. Two years of Italian. Great. I was locked in for that. And meanwhile... Everyone around me was miserable and bitter and crabby and gloomy and morose. Chicago's a tough place. The students were deep into their studies. The city was deep into the winter. There just wasn't a lot of happiness around, except in Italian class. My teachers, Rebecca and Ellen, both of whom have been guests on the podcast, by the way. Those shows are in the archive. And Ellen has her own podcast now, I think. And Rebecca was just featured in a movie. Those teachers... They were like rays of sunshine for me then. They're still like rays of sunshine, like rainbows, reminding me that although the rain was falling hard, there was the promise of better days ahead. And I thought, well, if I'm studying two years of Italian, I might as well go all in and really learn the language. And to do that, I might as well study abroad. And that experience transformed me. First, a trip to New York City to pick up a friend who was also on her way to the year abroad, visiting Mike Palindrome in his native element. That was part of that trip. And then the year in Bologna, making some lifelong friends, traveling around Europe on a Eurorail pass, experiencing life at its fullest, maybe for the first time, really. And I came back from that with one year to go at Chicago, and everything felt different. I wanted to learn new languages and meet new people and see new things and live a new life. I wanted to grab life, squeeze it, and hold it close and wring every drop from it that I could. But what to do? How do I do that? What job do I apply for? What graduate program is there in living life? I had no idea. No money, no prospects, no plan. And then my cousin stopped by. He was actually on a flight somewhere, and he had a big layover in Chicago at O'Hare. And so we planned to meet for coffee out there at the airport. He's older than me by a few years. He had been in the Peace Corps, and as far as I could tell, he had kind of dropped out of society, out of American society, that is. He'd traveled all over the world since then, hardly ever had come home. So we met for coffee, and he said, what are you doing after you graduate? And I said, I didn't know. And he said, you should come to Taiwan and need English teachers. And I said, see you there. We wrote letters after that to make the plans. I wound up flying to Kaohsiung with a suitcase of clothes and enough money to buy a motorcycle, and that was it. When I was there, I met all of his friends who were all 
renegades and itinerant travelers, expatriates, vagabonds. They told me about places I had to see. The Philippines, Thailand, Hong Kong, China, India, Nepal, Tibet. This was the Lonely Planet crowd. And so I just dove in, working to save money. My eyes on this beautiful backpacking trip I had ahead of me. I worked like crazy teaching English and literature to students, flying around on the motorcycle from school to house to tea house to library to wherever they would pay me to speak and read and teach. I taught everyone from kindergartners to master's degree literature students. And then when my visa ran out, I took my cash and got rid of all my stuff except a backpack and headed out for the world following a philosophy that my cousin had passed along. Always travel on the surface, by land or by water. Don't take any planes if you can avoid it. Always travel by the cheapest method possible. Don't travel first class. Travel by regular class and stay in cheap places. Avoid the tourists. Live among the locals to the extent that you can. Don't hire a private car. Take whatever people there actually take to get from one place to another. It's a way of opening yourself up, a way of being part of the experience, to understand, to empathize. This was when I started my effort to learn a new language every year and to read a book every day and to live life to the fullest. That's a long answer, Bob. I hope it addressed your question. And my very best wishes to you and your growing family. Let's take a quick break and come back with the astonishing life and writing career of Margaret Atwood. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Here's the sentence once again. Margaret Atwood is a Canadian woman, an incredible writer who has lived an incredible life. What should we start with? That she's a woman, her incredible writing career, her incredible life. We'll get to all of those things. But let's start with this. She is 
Canadian. Intensely, undeniably, unmistakably Canadian. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be Canadian? Or any nationality, for that matter. Russian, Argentinian, French. What does it mean when we say that a a writer is English or Irish? It means everything and nothing. I'm reminded of that time I met one of my good friends for lunch. He had three little kids, and I had two little kids. And we were talking about their little personalities. And he said, After watching my kids, I've developed a theory. Birth order explains everything. And he was so confident, and I love theories like this. So I jumped right in. He was telling me how his second child was kind of an alpha dog. Of course, I said. He's trying to compensate for being the younger one. Aha! You, my friend, have a little Napoleon on your hands. Exactly, said my friend. And we were enjoying ourselves, thinking how we had solved this little puzzle. And then I said, wait. Wait, hang on. I know families where the oldest child is the alpha. They're the leader, the fearless explorer. And the younger child just sits back and watches comfortable to be in a secondary role. And I thought my friend would acknowledge that I had just blown apart his theory, but instead he just smiled and nodded his head and said, Exactly. Exactly, because although I had identified a contradiction, I had also proved his point. I had confirmed his argument that birth order explains everything, because For every only child that you say is an extrovert because he's an only child and he needs attention, he's used to getting attention and so on, you can find an only child who's an introvert because maybe he never had to compete for attention, so he never developed that skill, so he's become shy and retiring and lets other children take the lead. And you can point to a child who's in a family of 12 children and say, look what an extrovert. Well, no wonder she had to compete for attention. Or... You can point to a child in a family of 12 children and say, she's so shy. Well, of course. It's her response to the chaos around her by withdrawing, being contemplative, the quiet observer of others. All that is to say, you can't predict from stereotypes, but prediction is not what we're trying to do. We're trying to explain. We're trying to understand. We're trying to find what's interesting to us. So, Here we go with nationalities. You can say, aha, so-and-so is Russian, and he's gloomy, and it's the gloomy Russian character in action. Or you can say, look at how cheerful so-and-so is. It's because he's Russian, and being cheerful was the only way he could cope with all that gloominess around him. On the one hand, what we're saying is that people are people. No matter where they are, they're individuals. We can find optimists and pessimists in any country. I was in California, longing for rain, and when I was in Seattle, I felt invigorated by all the clouds. Because I love being inside and reading and drinking strong coffee, I felt as powerful as any beach bodybuilder. In the California sunshine, I felt like I was underneath one of those magnifying glasses that concentrate the sun's rays and cause small insects to explode with heat. I had a headache all the time. I was different. I was reacting. I was formed by these places, but I was reacting to them as well. 
Getting back to our Russians, I wouldn't use my knowledge of Russian culture to predict whether a particular writer would be optimistic or pessimistic. I would read their works and decide based on them as individuals. But I'd be interested in either of those theories. If they were pessimistic, I'd love to know how that fit into the general Russian character, whether that's seen in its artists or its everyday people. And if so-and-so is optimistic, I'd love to know how he or she came by that disposition, even if it's slightly at odds with my outsider's understanding of what the Russian character should be. And most importantly, I want to tap into the worldview of these authors because I, too, have a pessimistic side. How does the pessimism resonate with me? Does it ring true or go too far? Same for my optimistic side. Does this worldview of this author make me rethink anything about myself? Does it make me laugh? Nod with recognition. Does it make me understand myself better? Does it help? So, Margaret Atwood is Canadian. What does that mean? She herself has done a lot of thinking about this. She was a pioneer in the literary sense. She gave interviews talking about how When she began writing novels and poetry, you could count on two hands the number of serious works of fiction and poetry that were published in Canada by Canadian authors in a year. She said the reviews for these works were in one section of one edition in the University of Toronto's Literary Journal. So from a these-were-improbable-beginnings standpoint, Canada is significant to understanding who Margaret Atwood, the person and author, were and are. This wasn't Elizabethan England with theater goers clamoring for new productions, just waiting for a Ben Jonson and a Christopher Marlowe and a Shakespeare to come along. This was a nation that was used to reading books written by others. But she persevered. It's one of her greatest traits, I think, dogged perseverance. She's written in an incredible range of genres and literary forms, No one gave her permission to do this, and that's her strength. She didn't feel like she needed to ask. She just wrote what made sense to her. One of these books caused a bit of a stir. She talked about nationalities and literature, and she said that if England's great presiding metaphor is that of an island, and if America's is a frontier, then Canada's presiding metaphor is that of a survivor. It's the literature of survival. It's a great, vast, forbidding landscape full of huge hardships and dangerous no-man's lands. Canadian literature, Atwood argued, adopted some of those national traits, surviving in the face of the dangerous wilderness, the survivor who goes forth and battles the elements, the people left behind, surviving by not taking risks and the hero who comes back to tell the tale, having survived. That's the metaphor. We can look for all these paradigms in her novels, and using my friend's magic trick, even when they're not there, that might be significant too. An absence of survival themes would say something interesting about what Atwood was up to. Maybe she was trying to move beyond it. Maybe she's creating a juxtaposition between a character and his or her surroundings. Atwood herself grew up in the wilderness. She didn't attend school until she was 12. Her father was a famous entomologist, and so she grew up traveling around the countryside with her family as her father studied bugs. 
But now we're encroaching on another one of our phrases that she lived an incredible life. So let's save that for now. There's another aspect of her Canadianness that I think is essential to understanding her, and maybe even more so than the notion of survival. She has talked about this too Canada on the fringe. There's a great frontier in Canada, all that land of the north, all that incredible wilderness. But its other geographic feature comes to the south, where most of its population lives, and its connection to its southern neighbor, the United States. Canada has a special relationship with the United States. America Junior, Homer Simpson calls it. I'm not saying that's fair. It might not even be how Canada views itself. I take a lot of my understanding of nations, including the United States, maybe especially the United States, from my travels abroad talking to people, hearing what they think of different countries, what they think of the states. And two things were true when I was traveling around and seemed significant here. One was that Canadians often put the maple leaf flag on their backpacks so people around the world would know that they were not Americans. The exits were close. The people were, <laughs> people were similar. They wanted to make sure they had some way of Drawing the distinction, Americans were the empire, sometimes the evil empire, for the people of some of these countries. And if they were, if Americans were not viewed as evil, they were at least viewed as the bully, the bull in the china shop, the meddler who would show up and make demands, wreak havoc. We were the Romans, arriving to demand tribute sometimes. Some countries might be fine with that. We had a legacy of doing good, too, here and there. We protected certain countries. We helped other countries gain wealth, independence. We stood for ideals and sometimes backed it up with the military. Canadians took a look at all this and said, Nah, (laughs) we'd rather you didn't lump us together. Thanks. Told me a lot about the world and about Canadians that they did this. These maple leaf flags on their backpacks. On the other hand, during those grand geopolitical discussions sitting around the hostel or the cheap restaurant, I noticed that Canadians would sometimes talk about actions that America had taken and say we. As in, we didn't go into Iraq until we had built the coalition. This was the first Gulf War we're talking about, to be clear. And it didn't bother me when they conflated the two countries, talked about a period of history we went through. If my friends from Australia or New Zealand or Europe talked about America, its motives, say, or its history or its culture, I felt like they were outsiders making commentary and judgments. There was no we. There was no internal understanding. They were on the outside of the house, looking in at the family and imagining what the family dynamics were like. But when a Canadian made a claim, it was different. They were in the house. They were part of the family. A cousin, maybe, but definitely inside. Definitely close enough to have a deep understanding of the culture, the history, the motives of America and Americans. Maybe an understanding even deeper than we ourselves had. That's the fringe that Atwood's talking about, I think. They're not in America, Canadians, but in a world dominated by America. And they are right there. Atwood is a child of the Depression and World War II, and she came of age in the Cold War and is basically an observer, a participant, a resident 
of the second part of the 20th century as it wheeled into the 21st. She's had a front row seat, the gladiator of battles that America has been fighting, first against a fellow superpower opponent, and since then, pretty much against itself. And you can say that this is significant for a Canadian artist, whether it's in the realm of music or films or publishing or visual arts or any other cultural endeavor you care to look at. But for Atwood, it's especially relevant because one of her great themes, maybe the greatest of all her themes, is power. How it's derived, how it's seized, how it's desired, and above all, what's done with it. Watching America thrash around like a shackled beast has given her plenty of insight into human nature and political and economic forces and the relationship between an individual and the state. Not from the viewpoint of the core, but from the hinterland, where you can see what's happening with some clear-eyed sobriety, some perspective, and you can also see how the effects of that nuclear core radiates out from the center as it melts down. Now, you might be saying, well, who cares what they think out there on the fringe? Or you might think, the fringe is the only thing that's interesting. Who cares what they think in the center? The point of literature is that different angles give us, well, different angles. We don't have to see one from one angle, which gives you a two-dimensional view. Different angles let us see the world in 3D. I used to have students from Manhattan who would say, well, poetry is meaningful to me because I live right at the heart of America's cultural life. I don't even need to read it. I'm right there and where poetry happens. And in a way, they were right. And I'd have other students who would say, I live in Maine or Alaska or Arkansas. And they would say, poetry is important to me because I'm in the middle of nowhere. They're right too. We don't get a view of America from one vantage point. We get it from multiple vantage points. And the Canadian vantage point, and let's be honest, we're talking about the Atwoodian vantage point, is valuable. And it's appealing because in some ways we're all outsiders to power. We're all on the fringe. I was part of the fringe when I lived in rural Wisconsin, and I'm part of the fringe now, even when my job takes me close to powerful people in D.C. I'm still on the fringe, still on the outside looking in, once in a while on the inside looking out. And what am I looking out at? The Fringe. Mm. The music tells me we're headed for some more emails. Let's do a couple. Then we'll get back to Margaret Atwood. This one comes from Angelo. Hi, Jack. Thanks for doing the History of Literature podcast. Apart from it providing me further insight that adds on to my 17-year-old high school year 11 criteria meeting analyses, it really does make me, someone who has not grown up on literature slash books, interested in going out of my way to enjoy literature. I've mainly focused on your Shakespeare episodes. I've also looked into others, such as Greek Tragedy, Virginia Woolf, Emily Dickinson, I swear... And there is a Google emoticon with sunglasses and a sideways smile. But Oh, let me stop there for a minute. A 17-year-old who has not grown up on literature books, but you, you're not grown up at all. 
You're the perfect age to start growing up on literature slash books. No need to start any younger. Not that you're ever too old, by the way, but boy, 17, no need to apologize. No need to even worry. You can start literature slash books right now. I should also say that I don't mind the focus on the Shakespeare episodes. Those have been some of my favorites to do, for sure. Shakespeare is simply the best. The email continues. So, I was wondering if you're planning on doing an episode on Shakespeare's comedy, The Merchant of Venice, while reading it for, oh, it says whilst, whilst reading it for sheer enjoyment. As I've heard, it's one of the bard's more controversial plays. I've also tried to read it sensitively at times. Thus far, I'm very interested in Antonio's character, who kind of gives off a self-righteous, pretentious, social crusader vibe especially when he forgives Shylock under the condition that he converts to Christianity, effectively saving, in quotes, his soul from destined hell as Christians view Jews. Thanks. Kind regards, Angelo. Well, Angelo, the good news is that, yes, we're planning an episode on The Merchant of Venice. It's a fascinating work and has had a fascinating history. So that definitely will be something we tackle soon enough. Good luck to you, Angelo, and thank you for the email. Here's a review that came in, I think, to Apple Podcasts, according to my review aggregator. Sends me an email every week or so. Subject, so good, I'm sad. Hmm. Interesting title. How sad... This is the review. How sad that a passion for great literature is rare and that Jack Wilson hasn't been called upon to revise current society to reflect the wisdom he talks so well about. This podcast makes me grateful for the internet. It's a mesmerizing oasis in a grim world that thinks genius is whatever makes the most money. This podcast is attempted <laughs> to point you all toward the Patreon account at that point. <laughs> Throw a little of that genius my way. ka <laughs> Sorry. Back to the email. The podcast... Mm, that was... Uncalled for. Back to the email. This podcast is a small rural restaurant in Tuscany with handmade pasta and tomatoes and plums picked fresh from the hillside, far from the miserable world of Chick-fil-A's. Oh, boy. You're right. I'm glad I'm not Chick-fil-A. Hopefully they're not one of the sponsors of this episode. I'm glad I'm not Chick-fil-A, although I would have settled for Popeye's chicken sandwich, which is very tasty. But a rural restaurant in Tuscany with handmade pasta. Now, you are really talking my language. You're bringing tears to my eyes and a growl to my stomach. Many thanks for taking the time to leave me such a wonderful review. Speaking of which, subject... The beacon of light that is your striving little podcast. Ah, truly getting misty now, here on the Thanksgiving episode. Striving little podcast is how I think of this thing, too. I didn't start with a name. I didn't start with a big publication behind me. It's really just, by big publication, I mean, well, you know who I mean some big magazines sponsoring the podcast, some big studio. It's really just one guy in a room with a pile of books 
and a microphone, speaking into the void. The podcast had no chance of survival looking back. It's amazing to see it grow into the sturdy little fellow it currently is. The email continues. Dear Jack Wilson, I just ordered my History of Literature tote bag, and though I've long felt obligated to send you a note, now I am feeling compelled to. I recently celebrated my 23 wedding anniversary, and the History of Literature podcast played a small role in turning a crumbling of plans into a salvageable and memorable experience. I ask your forbearance. (laughs) You have it. We lived not far from the downtown area of a major American East Coast city, and on Saturday, our anniversary, we had theater tickets for a 2 p.m. matinee in town. We planned to take the 1 o'clock train into town, but alas, it was suspended for tree trimming along the tracks. (laughs) I love these emails from couples. Remember the couple who got married thanks to our show? That was a highlight, not just of my podcasting career, but of my life. Let's hear how things are going for this listener who's been thwarted by some tree trimming. She writes, We hustled back to the house to get the car, and in order to avoid the clogged highway, we went toward the river drives, which were closed for functions. It became an exercise in restraint and a test on the elasticity of the marital bonds, as the so-called smartphones kept sending us toward clogged Sorry, kept sending us towards closed roads, and we drove through a maze of streets amidst a stream of frustrated drivers. We got there, shall we say, not on time, and instead of waiting for late seating, my husband finagled complimentary tickets for a future show, and we spent the afternoon exploring used bookshops, new monuments, and having beers in the middle of the afternoon with its tireless workers unpacking and shelving endless boxes of books, the used bookshop had a soothing effect upon walking in, a small storefront with books stuffed into every corner, shelves reaching to the rafters, books that have been read and paged through and that have stories of their own, fiction on the second floor, and just finding the stairs was a distraction. But thanks to you and your little shining podcast, I had a purpose. I found resolve. Along the rows I scanned, and then I saw it. At least four copies of Villette, according to you and George Eliot, Charlotte Bronte's most acclaimed work. And to think, I had only learned of it a few days before. I chose the cleanest of four copies and paid the full $3.50, despite flyers advertising a 50% off sale the following weekend. I felt grown up. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yes, this is fantastic. You could have had it for $1.75 by waiting just one week. But like a grown-up, you just paid the whole price. You needed that book. You'd have lost a week. And for what? $1.75. I heartily commend the decision, my fellow adult. Back to the email. Then, towards the river, we strolled, wondering if the beer gardens and hammocks of the summer persisted into the fall. Alas, the riverfront park was empty of tourists, left to the locals and caregivers. But then, there was another flyer pasted to the side of the Seaport Museum. Have you guessed where this is going yet, listeners? 
flyer pasted to the side of the Seaport Museum. I started getting excited at this point. A Melville Festival with a 25-hour reading of Moby Dick. Ah, how I did enjoy your show that featured this event and your discussion of Moby Dick. It was like having my own personal English teacher giving context to this dense read. My daughter and I are signed up for a crack of dawn reading in a few weeks. This is so wonderful. I feel like our reach, well, I guess this is what happens when you do 200 episodes of something. You start covering a lot of ground. The spider has unfurled a lot of sticky threads here, people. The web has gotten big. Here's someone wandering around aimlessly. And she finds a book I've discussed and an event we did a whole episode about how wonderful. And now the listener and her daughter are going to participate in the reading. And I'm wondering about the husband, though. The the one in the car. (laughs) We heard that the smartphones, it sounded like the smartphones might have created a little tension in that car. But what about the husband? Might that not be my greatest fan? My fellow soulmate, my literary compadre? Let's go back to the email. My husband, says the email, tends to fall asleep when listening to you (laughs) in the car. Ouch! Yikes. So much for the soulmate. Actually, I cut off the sentence. My husband tends to fall asleep when listening to you in the car, but not always. (laughs) Okay, that's a little better. And I don't mind hearing that I put people to sleep, actually. I get that a lot. People are usually grateful for it, frankly. Sleep's a good thing. The email continues. As for myself, I am wrapped on car rides, on trains, wherever, whenever I long for the voice of logic, of purpose. As I navigate my own little vessel on the stormy seas of modern life, your podcast shines like a beacon, a place of reflection and thought and rationale. Thanks to you, I have read stories by Gogol, delved into Toni Morrison, learned of Proust and Beckett, and have a list of books I don't need to read, including those by Hemingway. Since I am a woman and in my 50s, and Hemingway is for young men. You're at least as good as my best literature teachers, so thank you for being there, and congratulations on your 200 shows. Do you still need ideas for shows? I could always use help with Faulkner. Margaret. Well, Margaret... I'm happy to help with Faulkner. We'll hopefully do an episode on him soon. 2020 should be the year, I would think. And I would read a little Hemingway, if you haven't already. Maybe The Sun Also Rises, or A Movable Feast, or maybe just a couple of his classic short stories. Just enough to wet your whistle. But yes, please feel free to skip over the entire body of work of even the greats. Don't feel bad about doing so. There's enough good literature out there to focus on what you can and enough reasons to feel lousy about yourself. We don't need to add, I didn't read this or I didn't read that to the list. So let's take a quick break, then be back with more Margaret Atwood.
We are on our sentence. Margaret Atwood is a Canadian woman, an incredible writer who has lived an incredible life. Let's go to Incredible Writer. She is absolutely astonishing. After she had the epiphany of knowing she was a writer at age 16 and being absolutely determined to do whatever that meant, she has not stopped. I'm confident that she will be studied in a hundred years. Let's say 200. Let's assume that, well, let's assume the planet is filled with humans. Let's assume that The Handmaid's Tale will be read 100 years from now, or 200, which is a big deal. Very few books last that long. The Handmaid's Tale might be one of them. But even if it isn't, Atwood will be studied as a dominant figure in 20th and 21st century letters like Joyce Carol Oates and Salman Rushdie and Philip Roth and John Updike. She's written, I don't know if the counts are correct, but they're close. 18 novels, 10 collections of short stories, something like 20 collections of poetry, 11 or so nonfiction books, countless other essays and introductions and other comments on the world and on literature, at least three television scripts, at least two graphic novels, three libretti, a half a dozen children's books, at least. It's hard to count these things. Four e-books and a collection of drawings. That is in addition to the other literary duties and cultural and other endeavors, which we'll get to in her Incredible Life section. This is astonishing stuff. Can we just stop for a moment and say that she and Alice Monroe are both Canadian women and they were born within 10 years of one another? That's for all you literature students out there. Alice Monroe and Margaret Atwood. You could make an argument that Alice Monroe is the greatest living writer. Greatest living writer in English. You could also make an argument that Margaret Atwood is the greatest living writer in English. You could make the case. So there they are, the two of them, up there in Canada, compare and contrast. That's for you students, the essays and dissertations. Alice Monroe and Margaret Atwood compare and contrast and celebrate. That's for those of us humble readers and podcasters. Just enjoy the phenomenon. So, I could never do justice to all of Atwood's works, nor would I even try. If you're looking for recommendations, I would start with her most famous book, A Handmaid's Tale, and follow it up with the sequel, The Testaments, which just came out. And if that's not your thing, or once you go through those, I would recommend The Blind Assassin, Oryx and Crake, Cat's Eye, and The Robber Bride. All of those are excellent. All have won plenty of prizes. What kind of writing do we get in Margaret Atwood? That's another great thing about her. She grew up reading comic books and science fiction books and whatever was available, whatever caught her interest. And her writing has had the same kind of catch-as-catch-can, rule-bending, genre-bending. She's written what made sense to her to write in whatever form. Damn the reviewers, damn the publishers, damn the consequences. Her poetry tends to be her first thoughts. She has a genius type of brain, by the way. It sees connections that others might not, and it draws parallels that others might not. And she feeds it a steady diet of ideas and topics, politics and science and the environment, news about all these things, and literature, of course. 
in just her observations of the world. She thinks big thoughts and thinks a lot of thoughts in poems tend to erupt out of her, I think. She's not one of those writers who has a study and perfect conditions, and she retreats to her study. She calls us fetishistic, where she, she would retreat to her study in solitude and emerge with a daily ration of words taken care of. No, that's not Margaret Atwood. She writes pell-mell, headlong, wherever she can, in whatever conditions. Poems get written on hotel stationery with hotel pens. Once she was giving an interview, and she turned her arm over to show some lines of poetry she'd written on the underside of her arm. (laughs) Because one has to grab the chance to write wherever one can, with whatever is at hand, when one is a writer. Poems lead to novels. When she gets a thought that feels big to her, she expands, sometimes to a story, sometimes to a novel. And now let's talk about science fiction. She's often called a science fiction writer. Some of her books are called works of science fiction. It's the wrong label for what she does. She doesn't disparage science fiction necessarily. She just says it's not in her skill set. She's not someone who's going to describe the atmosphere on Mars or the working mechanisms of a spacecraft engine or the physics behind teleportation. Science fiction has monsters and spaceships, she said once. And in another interview, she said she didn't write science fiction, and she described it as talking squids in outer space. (laughs) Which led to a bit of a stir, as sci-fi writers found that to be a bit dismissive. (laughs) Makes me laugh. In any case, Atwood has given us a better phrase for what she does in books like The Handmaid's Tale, speculative fiction. That's what she calls it. This is more along the lines of Kurt Vonnegut or Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. It feels like science fiction because it's not the present. It's the distant past, or it's the future, or it's a future that feels like the past, as in The Handmaid's Tale. It's dystopic. There's a turn in society, a wrinkle, or a whole set of wrinkles that makes society different from what we know. But it's the sort of society that doesn't just shock us with a gee whiz, how cool kind of giddiness, as we might feel when we watch a different world like Star Wars with land speeders and planets with two suns and lightsabers and nightclubs full of aliens. It's a world that makes us excited and horrified, and it takes us deep into the heart of humanity. The Handmaid's Tale, which is also a TV series now, you've probably seen the red costumes and white bonnets that the women wear in the TV show. It's a dystopian novel published almost 35 years ago. It's set in New England in the near future, and the world in the book is a totalitarian government that has overthrown the U.S. government. The handmaids are women who are enslaved. They're not allowed to hold property or handle money. They're not allowed to read or write, and they have no control over their own reproductive functions. Sounds like a morality tale, right? A parable, a book by a woman with an agenda, a feminist, let's say, who says this is what the world would do if they could. And the reader comes to a book like that and agrees if they already agree and disagrees if they don't already agree. And maybe a few minds are changed, but for the most part, It's preaching to the choir, right? You know books like this. Well, 
that's not this book. Atwood gives us a a lot more than that to think about. That's the beauty of her commitment to speculative fiction. She only uses technology that already exists. And all those wild policies, all that horribly envisioned future in The Handmaid's Tale is based on things that have occurred or have been attempted or sometimes are about to be attempted. But they're based in reality. Atwood has a box of newspaper clippings that she gathered when writing The Handmaid's Tale. One of them was about a religious cult in New Jersey, a group of fundamentalist Christians that subjugated women and referred to them as handmaidens of God. They were so extreme, the Catholic Church kicked them out. Atwood clipped the article and underlined the word handmaidens. Another law she drew upon was Decree 770, which came from Romania during the Cold War. This was an interesting one. It basically banned contraception and outlawed abortion. But it did so, this law, not in the name of religion, as we might expect, as we're used to, but because the birth rate was low and the government wanted to raise the birth rate for economic reasons. They needed more population. They tried doing it through taxes and economic incentives, but that didn't work. So they applied the laws in a kind of horrifying way. Imagine saying that people, women, had to be vessels for childbearing for the good of the state. And yet, people couldn't afford to have children. So there were back alley abortions, societal disparity as rich people had access to contraception and abortions. Orphanages were overflowing. It had all kinds of terrible consequences, this law. Atwood reads about it, makes another note of this, another clipping for the file. This, too, can go into her dystopia. I found an article online that lists 17 real-world historical events that Atwood drew upon for the horrors in The Handmaid's Tale. Societies where prisoners were brought in to clean up radiation, women were forbidden to work, children were stolen, dress codes were mandatory. In the 1600s, Puritan women were required to wear Long dresses made of dark fabrics and head coverings, the Amish still do, still have this basic garb. Women in the Middle East have even more restrictive clothing. The FLDS Church, a strict sect of Mormonism, required the women to wear only loose-fitting skirts or dresses, and they couldn't be of bright colors. This sect actually only allowed the women who worked for the church to wear pants in 2017. What about forced surrogacy? Forcing women to bear children for someone else. Surely that's invented. A nightmare, a parade of horribles invented by Atwood. Well, no, she found that in the Bible. Public executions, secret prostitution rings, illegal homosexuality. I mean, a ban on homosexuality, a law against it. All this is found in various forms in various societies throughout history. Atwood isn't inventing dystopia so much as compiling it. Let's run through a few passages to give you a taste of her writing. I've chosen a couple here. Here's one from The Handmaid's Tale. Quote, Falling in love, we said. I fell for him. We were falling women. 
We believed in it, this downward motion, so lovely, like flying, and yet at the same time so dire, so extreme, so unlikely. God is love, they once said, but we reversed that, and love, like heaven, was always just around the corner. The more difficult it was to love the particular man beside us, the more we believed in love, abstract and total. We were waiting, always, for the Incarnation, that word made flesh. And sometimes it happened for a time. That kind of love comes and goes and is hard to remember afterwards, like pain. You would look at the man one day and you would think, I loved you, and the tense would be passed, and you would be filled with a sense of wonder, because it was such an amazing and precarious and dumb thing to have done, and you would know, too, why your friends had been evasive about it at the time. There is a good deal of comfort now in remembering this. End quote. And here's a passage from The Robber Bride, which will help set the stage for our next topic. Atwood as a woman. Is she a feminist? Yes, absolutely. Is she a feminist? No, absolutely not. Don't call her that. <laughs> How can both of those be true? It's Margaret Atwood. Of course, both are true. Here's the quote. Male fantasies, male fantasies, is everything run by male fantasies, up on a pedestal or down on your knees? It's all a male fantasy, that you're strong enough to take what they dish out, or else too weak to do anything about it. Even pretending you aren't catering to male fantasies is a male fantasy. Pretending you're unseen, pretending you have a life of your own, that you can wash your feet and comb your hair, unconscious of the ever-present watcher, peering through the keyhole, peering through the keyhole in your own head if nowhere else. You are a woman with a man inside watching a woman. You are your own voyeur. End quote. <laughs> that, would, that would gives us so much to think about. Let's hear from another listener as part of our Thanksgiving tour, the extravaganza, and take a quick break and come back with our final two sections of Margaret Atwood. Subject, Tomato or Tomanto? Dear Jack, I have just returned from a shopping expedition going to and coming from while listening to your podcast on George Eliot. Probably it was my third listen. It is one of my favorites. It had been my first venture into the history of literature, and I was intrigued by your adventures in Tibet as much as by your description of George Eliot, who cannot have been as ugly as described by your flock of male comrades. Cannot have been. Being a relative newcomer to the history of literature, I am free to hop from one podcast to another without the need to follow in order. So, most recently, I listened to the Brontes. Fascinating and well done. I pictured the parsonage on the hill, the cemetery with rainwater washing through it to be collected below for drinking water, the children with their ten little wooden men. Your discussion of Wuthering Heights was excellent. I pictured Heathcliff pushing his way to the window in his desire to see Catherine, one of my favorite books, Wuthering Heights. However, I must tell you that every time you said Withering Heights, I muttered, Wuthering, Withering, Wuthering, Withering, Wuthering. At times I lost track of what you were saying. Blame it on an OCD tendency if you want. But oh, Jack, when you do your podcast on that wonderful story, please say Wuthering with an uh, not an i, 
save me from myself. <laughs> Just for fun, I turned to Miriam Webster for a definite. This is still the email. Just for fun, I turned in to Miriam Webster for a definition of weather. To blow with a dull, roaring sound. So appropriate to the Moors with their competing allure and threat. The first time weather appeared in print was 1847, the year Wuthering Heights made its debut. You're great. So is Mike. Thanks for enriching my life with your love of good books. Cheers, Joan. P.S. I just bought you a cup of coffee. I'm trying to decide whether you drink it black or with cream and sugar. Skip that. I'll bet you, like one of your listeners whose email you read, would prefer a shot of whiskey and a good book in a room lit with only a bare light bulb. There we go. Thank you, Joan. Joan was able to buy me a drink from historyofliterature.com slash shop, of course, where you can buy a virtual coffee, which is actually a donation that I use to turn into actual coffee. Thanks to Joan's generosity, I did indeed indulge myself with a shot of whiskey in a room lit with only a bare light bulb. It was fantastic. The old Balvenie Doublewood. My old friend, there are very few things in life that please me more. One thing is pronouncing things correctly, and I admit that I pronounce Withering Heights wrong all the time. I just have a hang-up about that particular book, where Wuthering sounds wrong to me. Withering sounds better. Wuthering is like, duh, something heavy and sodden. Withering is a little more elusive, a little lighter. Maybe you could say wuthering is more appropriate, the sound of a low moan across the moors. But I like withering, like a whisper, like flitting, like Emily's intelligence. Oh, who am I kidding? Wuthering is correct. Withering has my heart. I will try to do bitter. I mean better. Although I do bitter better than better. Next email. Subject hijack, exclamation mark. Hello from Germany. I've been a diehard listener of the podcast for a long time now, and I can't thank you enough for the time and effort you put into spreading your passion for literature in such an approachable manner. It's inspired me to pick up and subsequently enjoy more than a few classics, which I had previously shrugged off as a, quote, waste of time, end quote. It's also allowed me to entertain my interests in language, literature, and philosophy. I can't tell you how many times I've listened and re-listened to the Marx and Voltaire episodes. I used to listen to your podcast on the way to school, but now I listen to them on the way to work. It's wonderful that although so many things have changed in my life since I started listening to the history of literature, the podcast has remained the one constant. So now that I've turned 18, becoming a patron was the first thing I did with my newfound sense of freedom. It's something I had wanted to do for a long, long time, and I'm overjoyed that I'm able to support my favorite podcast. I look forward to many future episodes. I'd be especially interested in one about my favorite author, Thomas Hardy. Best of luck in your future endeavors, Jack and Mike. Rania. Thank you, Rania. What a beautiful email. And Mike and I, or at least I, <laughs> I forgot. He wasn't on this one. I repaid the debt by putting out a Thomas Hardy episode. How's that for service? What a great, great honor to be the first thing Rania did upon turning 18. Hmm. Well... 
got a little dusty in the studio, which I'd like to blame on the cleaning service. But it should actually be blamed on me, crying so hard I don't have time to clean the place. Rania, I'm just floored. Many thanks. Rania is one of many who have filled my heart through their generosity by signing up as Patreons, which you can do too at patreon.com slash literature. Today, we are thanking Juliana, Hans, Anonymous, Elaine, Samuel, Jean, Murky, Anonymous 2, the local dairy council, and Stacia. Oh, and Daniel. Many thanks to you and to all our patrons for your extremely generous continued support. We would not be doing the show without you. So, we are already going a little long, so I want to tell you two stories about Margaret Atwood that will put her feminism in perspective. This is number three on our list of four things in that magical sentence we've been reading. Maybe I should say He's put the label of feminism in perspective. Before we do those two stories, though, let me just say that Margaret Atwood is in some ways the most credentialed feminist writer on the planet. She was herself a pioneer, blazing a trail for women through her writing career and her life. She was writing as an unapologetic woman and writing in a genre which was often called science fiction at a time when that made her kind of a novelty. A hero to aspiring women authors everywhere, a role model for authors of any gender. And her books, like The Handmaid's Tale, are about empowerment, about what it means to be a woman in a society where the subjugation of women is an extreme that has become the norm. She writes about other things as well. She's not writing the same book over and over, but I use this as an example to say, hey, Margaret Atwood, unapologetic woman, (laughs) obvious feminist, and yet... She resists the label of feminist in the sense of a feminist as a political activist, except she has been politically active, too. She's been to protests. She's taken positions. So she is, but she isn't. If she's asked if she's a feminist, she will say, well, tell me your definition of feminism. Everyone defines it differently. People mean different things by the word. Maybe some she'd agree with and some she wouldn't. That's true for other labels as well, by the way. People listen to this show and say, Jack's great if you can get past the liberal stuff. Well, what does that mean? What do you mean by liberal stuff? <laughs> kind of says more about you than me, I think. It's not a show about politics. Do you mean pro-diversity? Pro-immigration? What are you looking for in a podcast? A Christian perspective? A white nationalist perspective? I don't know. But here's the thing. Religious is another label like that. So is Christian and I just used it. Atwood resists because she's not agenda-driven. She's not someone with a set of points to make or a, a set of action items. She's not in a group or part of a tribe where she takes the points she wants to score from their agenda. She's a writer. The Handmaid's Tale, she said, was not written for the purposes of any particular political platform. It wasn't an effort to translate a political agenda into fiction and promote certain policies. It's bigger than that. It's broader. It's much more timeless and and universal. It's a cautionary tale, a warning, but it's also historical and descriptive. That's what I mean by universal. 
And it's not just about the treatment of women. It's about power. If they wanted to do this, this is how Atwood describes her approach to The Handmaid's Tale. They, the shadowy forces of the government, people who seize power, if they wanted to do this, how would they pull it off? That's what makes the book so good. If they wanted to do this, how would they pull it off? It's a question for the author to explore, not a medicine the author wants us to take. If they wanted to do this, what would they do? How would they pull it off? And she puts that question into her enormous brain, and the wheels start turning, and it comes out with, ideas and imagery and words. And it turns out that she gets a lot of it right. We see it happening all around us. At protests, people show up with signs that say, make Margaret Atwood fiction again. Atwood's favorite protester. Well, this was this was one of it. A lot of protesters now show up wearing the handmaid's costume, the red cloak and the white bonnet, because it's so effective. That's what Atwood loves about those protesters. Not just how flattering it is for her as a writer, to know that she put this into the world and it had such resonance, but that it's a perfect method of protest. You don't have to say anything. You just appear in those clothes and you sit quietly and your point is made quietly and shockingly. But I interrupted myself. Atwood was at the Women's March in Toronto and her favorite sign at that protest was held by someone close to her age, which meant in her 70s, I suppose. And her sign said, I can't believe I'm still holding this fucking sign. (laughs) Atwood said, it's push and push back. For 60 years, it's been push and push back. Now there's the pushback, and we will once again push. Here's the other tricky thing for Atwood, is that she approaches issues and ideas with honesty in clear-eyed observation, she doesn't take a side instinctively. She might be on a side, but it's only because she's analyzed the world and wound up there. She said once about feminism, quote, I didn't want to become a megaphone for any one particular set of beliefs. Having gone through that initial phase of feminism where you weren't supposed to wear frocks and lipstick, I never had any use for that. You should be able to wear them without people saying you are a traitor to your sex. End quote. And she also said, quote, My problem was not that people wanted me to wear frilly pink dresses. It was that I wanted to wear frilly pink dresses, and my mother, being as she was, didn't see any reason for that. End quote. That's Atwood as a child in the forest, where she lived mostly without electricity as her father caught bugs and Atwood read books. She dreamed of a frilly, uh, a frilly, a frilly pink dress. It wasn't imposed upon her. The whole notion of it wasn't quite as simple as we sometimes think it was. On the other hand, she later said that at the moment she realized she was a writer, quote, I was wearing my pink princess line dress that I had sewed myself in home ec. And at that very moment, I thought, goodbye, pink dress. It's going to be black from now on, end quote. Ugh. <laughs> uh. We have stereotypes and big movements, and then we have the individual right there in the middle of it, trying to resist, trying to hold fast, trying to be herself. Atwood's been criticized for certain Me Too statements and positions she's taken recently. She struggles, I think, with her 
celebrity status, or let's say with being an icon. Being a celebrity, she says, in today's era means she has to be nice to everyone at restaurants, or she'll be all over the internet, characterized as rude. And being an icon means everyone who looks toward the author of The Handmaid's Tale and all her other works will want her to take the quote-unquote right side of every issue. And maybe that will make sense, and maybe it won't. What you get with Atwood, who has resisted this, is the honesty of her opinion. That's all we should ask for. That's all we deserve. And really, we should appreciate that for what it is. There's so much more we could say about her writing. We've barely touched on her other novels or her poetry. Check them out. Dive in. There's plenty to explore. If you've had your fill of The Handmaid's Tale or you don't feel like you're ready to dip into that world at the moment, you could try Alias Grace, which tells the story of some notorious murders that took place in Canada in 1843. Two servants were convicted of killing the head of the household and a housekeeper. One of the servants was hanged. The other was sentenced to life in prison. Or you could try The Blind Assassin, which won the Booker Prize in 2000. It's about an elderly woman recalling the events that killed her sister years earlier, including family secrets and a novel called The Blind Assassin that had made her sister notorious and sensationalized almost a cult figure for having written that book. The two stories intertwine. This is a novel within a novel, and the twists and turns touch on themes of love and jealousy and betrayal as we roam through gothic drama, romantic suspense, and fantastical historical fiction. But we need to move on. So let's turn to the amazing life of Margaret Atwood. She said once that most writers live the interesting part of their life before they become writers. And we take her point. Sitting down at a table and writing isn't as interesting as the books themselves. Movies often struggle with this. It's more interesting to show someone growing up or falling in love or working at a job than it is to show them at a desk for six hours a day, even if they're writing on their arm. And celebrity has a way of being the same. Okay, so you flew to this conference and met with this or that publisher and received this or that award month after month, year after year. It's not exactly compelling. But Atwood has a lot to cover. We can start with her ancestor, Mary Webster, a woman in the 17th century who lived in the Puritan town of Hadley, Massachusetts, and was accused of witchcraft. The townspeople didn't like her, so they strung her up, Atwood says. But it was before the age of drop hanging, and she didn't die. She dangled there all night, and in the morning when they came to cut the body down, she was still alive. Of course, it's proved her guilt. Only a witch could survive that. She became known as Half-Hanged Mary. Atwood's grandmother would tell her that this was their ancestor. She had the same last name as Atwood's grandmother. And sometimes she would say, no, that's not right. She wasn't really our ancestor. And Atwood's only been able to trace her family tree back to a Webster that came a little later. So we don't know for sure. We just know it was in Atwood's family lore. Half-hanged Mary. We've talked about her childhood in the Canadian wilderness. I'm talking about Margaret now, not half-hanged Mary. Uh, living a life in the woods, writing stories and poems at the age of six, reading widely across genres. She went to school and did well. She wound up at university studying with the great literary critic Northrop Fry. 
She eventually went to Harvard to get a PhD, but stopped a couple of years in. Before she finished, she had other writing to do. She started getting her poems published, and then her novels, and soon enough she was a kind of one-woman industry, and she formed a company to handle all of her publishing issues and endeavors, all the rights and publications. She wrote those 40-some books, and then it became 50-some, and I think now it's 60-some. She's won every prize known to literature except the Nobel Prize. Damn it. But maybe that will change soon. She was five and a half to one odds to win it last time. And Peter Handke won, who had ten to one odds. Five and a half to one odds made Atwood the second favorite after Anne Carson, who was four to one. The Testaments might be what put Margaret over the top, I hope. Atwood has honorary degrees from Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, the Sorbonne, the Universities of Toronto and Edinburgh and Athens and Leeds and Waterloo and Dartmouth College and Smith College and right on down the list. At least 25 honorary degrees that I've counted. She's been the most famous writer in Canada for decades. She's been in several films playing cameo parts, and her name has appeared in several others as a tribute. Her voice is used in apps and other forms of technology. She's been the honorary president of environmental groups and the actual president of Penn Canada. She was a founding member of Penn International, the group that has helped to free imprisoned writers, along with all of its various offshoots. There's a lot of different pens in different countries. And she received a Lifetime Achievement Award from one of the Penn offshoots in 2017. And if all this weren't enough, she conceived of a long-distance robotic pen. She was on a paperback tour in 2004, and she was signing books, and she thought, wouldn't it be great if I could do this from anywhere in the world, if I didn't have to be here? Could sign the book through a computer, and it could sign it in another location. So she founded a company to develop the technology, and it worked. She holds several patents related to the technology, which was called Long Pen. No one told her not to do it, because she didn't ask. It was possible. It made sense to her. So she did it. It's the story of a Canadian woman, an incredible author, an incredible person, taking on the world on her own terms. It's the story of Margaret Atwood. Oh, wait, wait. Stop the music. Stop the music. We're not finished yet. We have one more email. Let's squeeze one more email in because it is our Thanksgiving week, or as I call it, Thanksgiving weep. As I flood the studio with my leaky eyes, this one has a subject line of gratitude. And how can I resist? During this time of giving thanks. Subject, gratitude. Dear Jack, I just listened to your latest episode on Marcel Proust, and it inspired me to build up the courage to email you. As a college student, I often ask myself, what is it all about? I'm constantly conflicted with choices of following my dream of owning a used bookstore on a random street corner, with books stacked all the way to the ceiling in a maze of literature, and wonder, and the comfort of a cubicle. 
is when I listen to your podcast that I do not have to worry about the future, and for that I express the utmost gratitude. When I become stressed about the ever-present life-after-college beast confronting me, I just turn on your podcast, and it makes life simple for an hour. When I tell people that I am an English major, the first response is, why? Depending on my mood, I go on tirades and the simplistic style of Hemingway or the brutal honesty of Stein, but other times I just recommend your podcast. You and Mike, the perfect co-host, perfectly communicate all the reasons I read a book per week. Literature is always about us, is what my English professor said last semester. I struggled to wrestle about her meaning, and I just assumed she meant commentary on life. Your podcast showed me that her definition is much more than that. Whether it be about the author or the reader's reaction, time of life when reading it, or just the listener to a podcast about the two. I am grateful to find people that enjoy literature as much as I do. Whatever you decide to do with the podcast has been a hell of a ride, and I thank you for that. All the best, Ben. Ben, I can't say anything else. You are on the right track. The world needs you. I need you. You have all of my best wishes and all of my thanks. The gratitude is all mine. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Wow, what an episode. (laughs) Margaret Atwood. Well, she gives us a lot to think about, doesn't she? And a lot to say. Her life is like an ocean. So many books, so many interviews, so many wonderful sayings, so many wonderful things. We live in her era, you might say. She's great at Twitter, too. My God, this woman. You can find more at historyofliterature.com and jackwilson.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com, although I'm terrible at keeping up both of those sites. I do my best. A lot of things get in my way. I heard my books are no longer available in Spain, so I'm trying to sort that out. Damn it. Damn it, Spain. What have I ever done to you? Didn't I throw you some tourist dollars when I went to Madrid and Barcelona and traveled up and down the country? And now you pull my books from Amazon? I don't know. Oh. Oh, wait. Is this about Don Quixote? (laughs) That was not me. That was Mike Palindrome, Spain. Don't blame me. I gave him a forum. He went hunting elephants, and I pay the price. Wow. The sacrifices of friendship, I guess. Speaking of friendship, I'm very glad you joined us for this episode, as I am for all the times you join us and all the subscribing and recommending and donating and general support you give this little show, this striving little show. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. My heart and mind reach out to you wherever you are to give you a friendly smile, maybe a handshake, and my warmest and most sincere expression of gratitude. It has been a hell of a ride, as listener Ben put it. And I'm very glad that all of you have been with me in the car. We're not there yet, by the way. The journey continues. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>